0: Andy Bud, I am so thrilled to have you on 20 Minute Playbook. Thank you
1: so much for coming on and for joining me. My pleasure. I'm really excited to jump in and answer some of your questions.
0: So where I'd love to start, we're going to kind of jump into the deep end, uh, you know, so thank you for going ahead and doing that with me. But where I wanted to start is kind of talking about your day. And the, the way I typically ask this question is, if people listening could shadow you for a day from the moment you wake up until you go to bed, you know, as creepy as that might be, what would they see and what would be they, what would, what would they be most surprised by in
1: terms of just how you live your life or how you do your days? Well, that's a great question because I've actually got a pretty sort of fixed daily routine. Um, I wake up at 2.30 a.m. every morning and do 45 minutes of meditation. My first workout starts about 4.40. I then have uh, three turkey burgers, sweet potatoes, and a protein shake. I do a round of go. I eat 10 turkey meatballs and then jump in the cryo chamber for recovery. Hold on. Wait a second. Sorry. No, that's not me. That's Mark Wahlberg. No, no, no. That's definitely not me. That doesn't sound like me at all. Um, no, I, I don't have a particularly exciting kind of routine. You know, I kind of wake up at sort of six thirty-seven. I might try and get out and and do a little bit of a walk around the block to try and get some light in my eyes, you know, help the reset the circadian rhythms. If I'm feeling good, if I'm in a good routine, I I might do some exercise in the morning and got some kettlebells, you know, chin up bars and stuff like that. But actually at the moment I've been a bit slack. So my training regime has kind of gone off the boil. Sometimes I go for a swim. Sometimes I do a little bit of rock climbing, but but really, it kind of depends at the moment, depending on my mood. I kind of usually, yeah, kind of like have a, have a pretty simple breakfast, get sort of stuck in about kind of 8.30. And my day is basically just hopping on calls. You know, I'm an advisor, I'm a coach. I think, you know, previously to the pandemic, I'd have been up and down in London and having lots of in-person um, meetings. But these days, it is really just kind of video calls, bit of a break, catch up, review what I'm going to be doing, next video call. Yeah, so, so you know, pretty, pretty standard stuff, really.
0: Is there anything you do to, I'm guessing during some of these calls, you know, there might be moments where you want to reflect or where you want to take time or where you want to try to process something. Is there anything that you do, whether it's going out for a walk to try to help jog your mind uh, when you're stuck on a problem thinking about something?
1: My, My kind of day or my week actually is kind of lots of little kind of sort of nuggets these days. Like back in the day when I was running an agency, I was much deeper involved in project work, and yeah, I think kind of going for walks and that kind of stuff is really helpful. These days, because I guess a lot of my value is in sharing my knowledge and experience with people, I feel that I have to kind of consume lots of books. Um, unfortunately, like I don't really seem to have the time or the headspace to kind of do as much kind of text reading as possible. So I typically have my Wednesdays as a kind of a walking in the country day. I go for like a three, four hour hike. I will stick an audible on, usually at like a two or three X speed. Um, and I'll kind of consume a whole bunch of books. And so if one of my portcos is struggling with a a problem around growth or a problem around positioning, I might kind of, you know, find the book that is like the the canonical kind of um, subject matter, kind of consume that, maybe watch some videos, maybe sort of read some articles so that when I have that conversation with them, I'm kind of up to the kind of the latest, um, the latest thinking. So that's probably the sort of the the main thing I do in, in that respect.
0: Yeah. What, you know, maybe asking a very different question, what sorts of values and standards do you bring to your work in your life every single day? You know, so if you're, if you now you're in this kind of wonderful phase of life of giving back, how, you know, how do you try to show up in the moment and what's important to you about how you show up for your teams and the companies that you work with?
1: I mean, again, it's an interesting question, and it might have a kind of a North America or a Californian sort of slant. I think I'm a particularly sort of British kind of interviewee, so I don't have some kind of life mantra. I don't have like a poster with my 10 values or some hawk sweeping down from a mountain and, you know, live life, you know, minute by minute, you know, you know, or, you know tattooed on my arm or anything like that, I'm afraid. But if you were to press me, I'd say I probably have quite a Taoist outlook on life. And when I say Taoist, I don't mean like Web3 Tao, I mean kind of like Taoist philosophy Philosophy. i'm a fairly calm and balanced person i generally don't lose my temper or my rag as you'd say in the uk um, this really helped me with a couple of my hobbies i'm, I'm a a, a, fly, a flyer a pilot and a cave diver and the last thing you want to do is kind of panic when you're 100 foot underwater or 2000 feet in the air and something goes wrong so i'm pretty kind of level-headed people talk about this quality of equanimity and i think i've got quite a lot of equanimity i think that really helps if you're a founder and I think it really also helps if you're going into tense situations, if I'm working with founders who are struggling with a thing, if you're able to kind of approach it calmly and take a lot of the 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 kind of the negative emotions out, um, I think that can be really, really helpful and sort of keep in your head, basically. I am passionate about what I do. I want the, the work I do to always be to a very high standard. So I think as a lot of designers, I'm a perfectionist. However, at the same time, over the years, I've learned to become a pragmatist as well. And realize that nothing is ever perfect. I think I meet a lot of designers who every time they release a thing, it's it's 80% better than what was there before, like or 80% to, to where they want it to be. But rather than celebrate the 80%, they mourn the 20% that could have been. Um, I kind of want to do better next time. I want it to be 85 or 87 or 88. I know that perfection is usually impossible. And so I think I have that pragmatic realization that I shouldn't kind of live in the past or kind of live in the future, which I think is this sort of, again, this sort of Daoist thing, I guess in my day-to-day life, I I tend to prioritize experiences over things, you know, I'll happily spend money on a nice meal with friends or a a good holiday or an experience sort of flying or diving or climbing or whatever. But I agonize over spending money on sort of things like a new TV or a new laptop. Um, So I guess, yeah, that's a, that's sort of me in a nutshell, I guess.
0: On the Taoist bit, you know, I guess something I'm always curious when when people talk about that is is whether that was something that you've just always had—that's maybe a part of your upbringing, just a part of your you know deposition disposition as a person—or whether it's something you've had to develop. Talk a little bit bit about that.
1: That's a really interesting question, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, my brothers, who are older than me, um, went to university, I guess, in sort of the '70s, and sort of discovered you know, Taoism and Buddhism and had all these books kicking around home. And so when I was growing up, I kind of read them and I'm I'm not religious. And so I see these things as more of a philosophy or a way of life. But I kind of read a lot about kind of Buddhism and and this sort of idea of like life is suffering and nirvana is about breaking this chain of suffering. And a lot of you know a lot of Buddhists um will try and avoid spicy food or you know, kind of wearing, you know, the, the the Buddhist monks will wear saffron robes to kind of mimic the robes of the dead because they want to be longing longing for things. And I just, it sounded really interesting, but it also to me just sounded quite a kind of a, a dull, neutral existence. But I can understand, like, if you're constantly longing longing for things, like if you have a great meal and then the next day you're kind of constantly thinking about the meal or you don't have a meal and then you're hungry, you know. So when I kind of read Taoism, you know, the I Ching, the Dao De Ching, I kind of just like the philosophy of kind of like accepting these things, but not dwelling on them. It's kind of like meditation, really. Like an idea comes into your head, you recognize the idea and you let it go. And I'm not a big meditator. I'm not a big um, kind of a sort of spiritualist at all, but I just kind of like the idea that, being too much in the past, too much in the future, longing for stuff is going to keep you in a constant state of of, of um, disappointment. So I quite like to let life flow through me and, and not attach myself to things. And so that's also, I think, why the experiences rather than the physical things attract me. Like I've got no idea how much of this is upbringing, how much of this is reading these kind of books as, as a as a child. But I think I tend to have a fairly even keel uh, amongst life and, and, and yeah, tend to not get too attached and, and not get too depressed by you know, whether life doesn't go my, my way. So um, yeah, I can't really answer that question, partly because I'm not thinking about the past or overly obsessing about the future. I'm just kind of where I am now. So weirdly, y- your question within it contains maybe the answer.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, if you didn't have an answer for it, whatever answer you just gave, I think is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it covers on a lot of interesting pieces. I, I want to ask a, you know, a very different question and, and talk a little bit about some of your background in design and design leadership. You know, you're know, you an incredibly well-respected design leader and thinker. Uh, what do you think most people get wrong or misunderstand about design? And one of the ways I wanted to try to ask that question is, what are some of the biggest misconceptions, both in people, because designers work with engineers, product managers, a whole host of people within a company, and within companies now it's somewhat deep and broad
1: (laughs) i mean this is this is the perennial problem this is the problem that every designer has every single day getting up going to work you know and kind of you know repeating is that most people's view of design is what they can see it's aesthetic so people look at a nice thing and go oh that's pretty that's design what most people don't realize is the the work and effort and the thinking that goes into producing that physical Beautiful asset, and actually, how design isn't just about how something looks; it's about how something works and about how people experience it. And the sort of really good designers are, you know, not just doing visual design; they're doing interaction design. They're understanding how people flow through a system. They're doing experience design. They're understanding what the uh, the the experience is going to be like of using a product and service. Um, but all of that stuff gets lost. And I think that's a real shame. I think, you know, I speak to a lot of founders who, you know, when I suggest, hey, you know, you should think about getting a designer. Like, well, we don't need a designer yet because we're still figuring out what the product needs to do. And you're like, that's what design does. Their, their model of design is often, well, hey, we, we 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 figure out what it does. We get the engineers to build it. And then we get the designers come in to make it look pretty. And yes, yeah, sure, you can do that. But you are missing 80% of what the value the designers can bring. You know, designers... I think, you know, I love engineers and engineers have a real, um, they love pulling apart um, products to understand how they work. Designers do that as well, but they're about pulling apart people. They're about pulling apart and understanding what makes people tick. And so having somebody on the team that can understand what makes people tick and and create a solution that meets their needs, I think is gold. And and actually, I I often argue that designers are usually, or at least design is a source of product market fit. And if you didn't have a designer on board, then you're unnecessarily reducing your ability to reach that product market fit as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with the way that you framed it up and this idea that design is brought in at the end, almost to like, take what we've made and make it look great. You know, just kind of add a coat of paint on it. How do you think that we change that perception and get people to understand that design needs to be further upstream? Because it almost seems in many ways like something that could never happen, or at least will only happen in a small percentage of companies.
1: And again, this is you know this is a thing with with a lot of my coaching clients. Um, their big thing is wanting to get their organisations to appreciate design more. I think the challenge is what we do is we try and prove it intellectually. We'll put that big deck together once a year, opportunity to pitch to the, the CEO, and we'll pepper it with quotes from Jared Spool, from graphs that go up to the right showing how you know, design-focused companies perform better, and, you know, we'll have a picture of an iPod or an iPad or, a, you know, a Nest thermostat, and we'll go, hey, don't you see, you know, can't you see the obvious thing that's in front of you? And, you know, the answer usually is, well, that's great, but we're not an FTSE, you know, you know, f- or, or, or kind of, you know, S&P 500 company. We're not Apple. We're not Airbnb. This has no relevance to us, and we're not buying into your high thesis because it's usually highly theoretical. The best way to demonstrate it is to show value. The best way to demonstrate it is to be that designer that joins the team and helps the founder solve the problems they didn't realize design could could solve. They thought they needed to hire an engineering manager, or they needed to hire a product manager, or they needed to hire a marketing person, or you know a go-to-market you know specialist. And suddenly they're amazed. Wow, I didn't realize that that designers did this. I think this is one of the reasons why. Design sprints have become so popular. I think a lot of executives see design sprints as a way of cutting down budget because it's like, hey, like, w- this thing that used to take us six weeks, we can do it in a week. But what ends up happening is those executives come to design sprint. They see all the stuff the designers are doing while well, they're doing research. Oh, they're testing prototypes. Oh, they're testing hypotheses. Oh, they're doing workshops. They're building maps and modeling. And actually, the visual design stuff usually is like on day sort of you know, three, four, five. And even once they've done that, then we're going out and we're testing it with the market. And suddenly, you see these light bulbs pop over executives' heads, going, "Oh, wow! If this is what designers actually do, I can see how they can add value over here. I can see how they can add value in helping us figure out what the next problem is we're going to solve, what the next product is we're going to deliver, help them, fig- you know, help us figure out this go-to-market strategy, this 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 tricky problem." Because I think at the end of the day, design is a, you know, people talk about design thinking um, and there is a process and a a way of approaching a problem that is very unique to designers that I think executive teams often miss and designers can kind of bring that approach, which they're sort of struggling to kind of solve. So yeah, that, that would be my answer, I guess.
0: Yeah, that was brilliant. You know, I'd love to talk about areas where you have an edge or a superpower. And, and the way I want to ask this is, you know, if you were to kind of zoom out and think about yourself objectively, you know, it's always difficult to do. What do you think of as your edges or superpowers and how do those help you day to day or how do those show up in your life
1: and your work? I'm not really sure I have a superpower, but I think I'm a pretty good communicator. Um, I think I take complex ideas and can present them in ways that are mean to people and storytelling you know, I, I speak at a lot of conferences. I'm I'm usually not the most knowledgeable person on the subject. I'm usually not the most experienced person on the subject, and the, the most published person on the subject. Um, but what I can do is I can present that information in a way that kind of lands and resonates. And I think being a good communicator is a great skill to have, whether you're a designer, a PM, an entrepreneur, because a lot of, I think the day-to-day challenges we face in our workspace is an inability to really communicate our value, our vision, our our output. And actually a lot of the kind of the roadblocks, a lot of the misunderstandings, a lot of the things that slow us down are because the picture I had in my head, I've been unable to communicate to that next person. And I think this is another reason why designers have a superpower because designers are often able to extract that vision in a visual way and then play it back to the person and say, hey, look, you know, you've said you wanted X here's what X looks like. Is that what meets your needs? And that person will go, actually, no, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking something else. And so being able to visualize what a group of people are thinking and then point at it and saying, is this what you meant, is a really, really um, uh, powerful uh, tool. Um, I think the other thing is being a good communicator. I'm probably quite a good connector. You know, I've, through my history of running conferences and events and meeting people at conferences and events, running meetups, running dinners, running, you know, um, Kind of retreats. I've been able to build up a really really strong network of people. I've also got a pretty decent. I mean, not kind of like you know crazy level of social media followers, but I have got about sort of sixty k followers on Twitter, which means that like when people ask me a question, if I don't know the answer, I've got a pool of people I can I can ask. I've, I've got my my community. I took I can ask. I've. I've got a you know a leadership Slack community of about three thousand head directors and VPs. I've got a you know a group of people. So if someone says, "Hey Andy, look, you know, what do you know about kind of growth design?" I can give them the kind of like the cliff notes and TLDR. But I can say, "Oh, but I know the person that wrote the book about that." If someone asks me about design systems, like, "Well, I've got a rough idea of how that works," but hey, I can I can introduce you to Brad who you know, created Atomic Design. And so being that kind of connector, and I think. That is a really, really useful tool as a design leader. I think, or a founder, to be honest, because I think as a as a founder, we also need to be talent um, scouts. You know, like no matter how good your idea is, if you don't have the team behind you to get it over the line, you're going to struggle. You're going to you, you're, you're going to really have a hard time. And so, being able to kind of spot talent and in your network, have other people in your network raise that talent up to you, I think, is a real important skill so yeah i think the power of my network and the power connections and my communication skills are probably the things i'd say have got me to where i am today
0: i'd love to talk a little bit about books you know it's one of my favorite things to talk about you kind of referenced it earlier that you're in this phase of life where you're trying to be much more intentional about reading as much as you can and so the questions I want to ask is, you know, if you could share any books that have had an impact, and this could be anything, this could be fiction, nonfiction, you know, whatever, uh, that have had an impact on the way you work, um, you know, your life or the way you see the world. And I think specifically within that, if there are any books around design or ha- or product or just creating something wonderful, it could be books about craftsmanship that you'd recommend to people listening.
1: Yeah. So um, I think the kind of designers that I associate with and like the kind of the user-centered designers Um, have always had a real interest in human behavior. You know, that's why we're called user-centered designers. And so psychology plays a big part of of that. And many of my friends who are designers um, that have been doing this for 20, 30 years actually came from a psychology background. So there's not a specific single book, I would say, but there's definitely a genre of books, which is the area of behavioral economics, where human behavior meets commerce. And I find that Particularly sort of in my sort of late 20s, early 30s, I found myself consuming all of the, the key books in that field. Influenced by Caldini is a, is a classic. Predictably Irrational by Dan Ehrlich, Nudge by Richard Thaler, um, The Call of Them All by Paco Underhill, and The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz are all classic kind of books that kind of explain how our view of how we think people will behave. Often isn't how they behave. If we think about people as rational actors; then they'll behave one way. But actually, people often behave in very different ways. And I think I see a lot of a lot of early startup teams are driven by engineers, and engineers are often rational actors, are often very very logical, and they have a certain belief around how people use the product. And I think it's fascinating what happens when that belief meets, you know, where rubber hits the road. Where the, you know people talk about where strategy meets the kind of the enemy. You know, I often see this, and the best way of seeing this is in a usability um, study. You know, you have a whole bunch of engineers behind a glass wall. You have a user that comes in and tries to use these engineers, beautifully crafted logical system. You know, hey, it's anyone could use it. It's Discord. It's Macedon. This stuff is easy. You know, I'm an engineer. I, I spend all my time in this. I'm a super user. I know how everything works. Anyone else should be able to do this. And then the first user comes in and, and, and struggles. And, you know, the people behind the glass are laughing. Where did you get this idiot from? Then the next person comes in and, and they're laughing, but they're laughing a little bit less. Then the third person comes in and then the the, 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 the light bulb starts to go, and hold on, okay. Maybe they're not the problem. Maybe we're the problem. Maybe we haven't thought through properly. Maybe we haven't understood how... Are perfectly logical language because we know what this particular word means in a technical context. Maybe the people who are using it for the first time or the second or the third time don't understand that. Maybe because we're in the system and we use it every day, we have a superpower, um, a super user level understanding. But if you actually only use this product once a week, once a month, or even just for a half an hour, an hour a day, you don't know how it's put together. You don't understand the code base. You don't understand the architecture. And why would you? And so, you know, and a lot of the time, you know, again, I think it still happens to this day, like a lot of organizations will expose their business logic or expose their organizational structure to users, thinking that their users should be able to navigate through this. And they often don't. And so I think it often takes this kind of contact with users to make people go, oh, we have a problem. And so this is also often where design comes in, sadly, you know, I do meet Companies are started by founders that are designers, but very frequently I find designers are bought in maybe a year, 18 months after the, the product has, has kind of launched because they're suddenly realizing that all of this, you know, hockey stick growth that we thought would happen isn't happening. And it isn't because the code isn't fast or beautifully commented or, perf- you know, performant, you know, and it's not because we do not have the right features. It's because people just can't for the life of you understand and navigate through this system. I'd love to, you know, kind of switch tacks and go back
0: and talk a little bit about your design background. One of the things, um, that, you know, that you've done is you've run an incredible number of design conferences. You brought together thousands and thousands of people around the globe, uh, at a number of, you know, incredible events. And so I want to ask two questions around that. And the first one is if you have a favorite talk or a favorite speaker that comes to mind as you kind of think back over all the conferences you've put together and, or if there's a favorite moment or story that you can share.
1: I mean, I guess, yeah, I've got two of those. I think, um, One of my favorite talks was one probably from about 15, 20 years ago. Um, uh, I think maybe sort of South by Southwest 2005 or 2006. And it was my now friend, Jeff Veen, who worked at a company called Adaptive Path and then started TypeKit, which they sold to Adobe, and, and now is a VC as well. And he gave a talk, which I think was titled something along the lines of you know, great designer steel. You know, the, the, the title itself was kind of pretty uh, irrelevant, really. But this is a talk that over the course of three or four years, I must have seen five or six times. And a lot of people, when they go to conferences, they get a little bit snippy if someone is recycling the, the talk. But I found that each time I saw this talk, I was in a different headspace. I was solving different problems, different challenges, and something different and new every time jumped out to me, some kind of insight that I hadn't been able to kind of um, absorb before. And I kind of realized that like a lot of the stuff around conferences, a lot of people go to conferences thinking that the job is to hoover up points of knowledge. And all I need to do is have enough points of knowledge. If I remember all the things that have been said, then that's enough. Whereas when I sort of started listening to Jeff Veen's talk, like what would happen is it would start firing connections in my brain. And they weren't even necessarily about the thing he was saying. Sometimes it was a turn of phrase or a, or a kind of like an aside, but it, it had this kind of like sort of effect of like joining all my snapses together go, wow, I've had some kind of insight that I didn't have before. And so for me, it's that process of insights. And so I think I can, you know, just as you can see a com- comedian, a funny film dozens of times and still find it hilarious, I think a really, really well-crafted talk can speak to you at different points in your life. And so for me, Jeff's talk was one that kind of opened up the power of a really, really good presentation to me. In terms of my own experiences with the conferences I've run, I've seen lots of amazing speakers. Um, but one that stands out is a was a Disney animator, a legendary Disney animator called Glenn Keane. And he gave a talk at UX London maybe six or seven years ago. And his talk was just so emotionally charged in an uplifting way that like by the end of it that almost the whole audience was in tears including myself like I had to get up on stage I'm, I'm kind of like tearing up a little bit kind of even thinking about it like I had to get up on stage after this sort of emotional journey and sort of say thank you and I was kind of like you know kind of my voice was wavering or whatever and it was partly I think well two things really I think first of all being a disney animator he was a masterful storyteller so he was just able to tell the story of a career like a whole lifelong career this was somebody who was maybe in their 60s and 70s and he got up on stage and he demoed like 3d virtual painting tools using an oculus rift that he was working on now it was like i think it gave the whole audience this idea that hey look you know Because I think a lot of people, a lot of designers were going through some kind of midlife crisis thinking more like, you know, I'm 30, I'm 40, what am I going to do? And so seeing this kind of like 60, 70 year old designer who was still in their prime, who was still using cutting edge technology and was able to kind of like demonstrate their enthusiasm and and sort of lust for life, I think made everybody in the audience go, wow, like if I could be half that person, like, you know, at at their age, like I'm going to be happy with my career. So that was a really, really uplifting moment for me.
0: Yeah, those are wonderful. I'm going to find those. I'm going to do my best to find those and see if we can link to both of those talks, a transcript or a video in the show notes. People can find that at outlieracademy.com. I want to ask, you know, two closing questions. Um, you've been so generous. This has been so much fun. Um, and the first one is, you know, I'm going to kind of ask the impossible, which is if you were to try to distill your ironclad principles around design, the things you've learned that are timeless, that aren't going to change, and just, you know, be able to kind of briefly impart those on people listening, what what would those principles or rules be?
1: I mean, that that is a really surprisingly hard question, which is, is tough because you'd thought, okay, you've been doing this for 20, 30 years. You should kind of be an encyclopedia of all these rules. But actually, there's this idea in kind of learning where you move from unconsciously incompetent to Consciously incompetent, which is like I don't know what I didn't know, to now I kind of do know what I don't know, but I'm still not very good at it, to consciously competent, which is kind of when you're learning all these things and you're you're learning the names of all of the kind of psychological kind of behaviors, you're learning all the names of the different kind of techniques. But after a number of years, you move into this space that's called unconsciously competent, which is where you have internalized All of this knowledge to a point where you're really good at doing the thing, but actually it becomes really, really hard to kind of like go, well, what was that? What was that psychological technique you do X, Y, and Z? Because it's, it's not been sort of filed in the kind of like the random access of your brain. It's kind of sort of deeply pushed down into your core ability, um, you know, it's a little bit like driving, you know, like when you're, when you're just learning your driving test or flying, like you're aware of all the things, you know, mirror signal maneuver, you know, like what every kind of sign means perfectly. Once you've been doing it for 20 years and someone kind of asks you to kind of describe and teach you how to, to drive, it's often hard because it's been internalized. So I don't have any pithy answers to that, I'm afraid, but um, I don't want to leave your audience feeling shortchanged. So I think there are two really good books that, that kind of like tackle this well. I think the first book is a classic it's quite old now but it's called the universal principles of design and in this book there are like you know, f- you know 50 60 kind of core truths around design um that if you read it like you know as a designer you go yep 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 that all makes sense and some of it's to do with proximity some of it's to do with kind of positioning location some of it's to do with kind of more kind of abstract thoughts. And then the other book, which I think is really brilliant, which is related to that, is um, 101 Things I Learned at Architecture School, which is a lovely little kind of stocking filler for any of your kind of audience um, that have a designer in their life. And basically, it's just uh, each page is a little sketch and a little kind of insight that the architect would have had from learning about that. It's about space planning and positioning and how people flow through a, a system um, and those two books, I think, are, are really, really interesting. There's another book, which is called A Pattern Language, which is similar to 101 Things I Learned About Design, Learned at Architecture School, which is actually where engineers get the term patterns from. Um, um, so yeah, an architecture book called A Pattern Language, which is really interesting. And then there's another book, last book, which the name escapes me at the moment, but it's, called, it's by a guy called Ken Watanabe. And it's a beautiful book. It's almost like a book that's aimed at children but it, it teaches children a design thinking process. It's almost like a philosophical book. I think it's called like Problem Solving 101 or something like that. And I think those four books, if you wanted to kind of get a real underpinning of the psychology and practice of design, those books would kind of set you instead really well.
0: Yeah, I will find that Ken Wantanabe book. Uh, make sure, you know, figure out what the title is and make sure we link to that. Um, I was just going to say on the 101 Things I Learned, I, I bought that book. Uh, it's actually part of now a whole series, and uh, basically every other book that you can buy in that series is just as incredible. There's one about cooking school. There's one actually that I found fascinating around law school. Uh, and, and you know, if you've ever, for anyone who's done uh, venture capital, for anyone who's done, I guess, anything involving law, you start to get curious about actually what the heck is law? <laughs> what does that look like? And what are some of the principles? Um, and that's one of the best books I found that you can read on that. So, anyways, huge plus one to that book and in that whole series. Last question. If you could go back to the start of your childhood or the start of your career and whisper a few words of wisdom or reminder in your ear, what would you tell your younger self? And is there any advice you would give them?
1: Oh, yeah, I've got one one, which is buy Apple stock. Does it matter if you feel it's overvalued? <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> if you if you look at it and go, well, this is crazy. Like, this is never going to go higher. It will go higher. But other than that, no, I mean, again, in all honesty, I think I did pretty well. You know, I think I've turned out pretty well. So I kind of don't want to go back in time in some kind of weird, creepy sort of Biff Tannen way and try and tell my kind of younger self, like, you know, I've got to get the Almanac, I've got to do X, Y, Z. But again, I think that goes back to the thing we were saying about kind of Taoism, about not regretting past choices or worrying overly about about sort of um, future choices. Like, I am where I am. I think I turned out pretty well. And I actually think, you know, if, if I did go back in time and, 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 and whisper into my ear about a thing, I'd probably mess it all up. You know, that whole kind of like going back on time, accidentally sort of wandering off the path, standing on the wrong kind of butterfly. And when you come back into the future, suddenly, you know, the, the Germans won the war or dinosaurs didn't exist. And so I'm kind of perfectly happy where I am, to be honest.
0: Don't touch it. It's, it's it's worked out great so far. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's a perfect note to end on. I really appreciate you spending time and, and joining me. So thank you, Andy.
1: My pleasure.